Hi, welcome to Coach Beard's Book Club. I'm Michaela, Coach Beard's assistant. Together with Andrea, Bex and Marita, we'll be diving into the books mentioned or seen in the Apple TV series Ted Lasso. So if you love Ted Lasso as much as Van Damme loves Amsterdam, then join this group of four women handpicked by Beard himself and let's go. Welcome back, Greyhounds. This time we're talking about sense and sensibility. So my question for us all is, are you sense or are you sensibility or are you both? And I'm going to ask Bex first. I'd like to think I'm sense, but I'm probably not as much <laughs> as as I'd like to think so in my head. <laughs> so you're sensible, sensible about knowing that you're mostly sensibility. There we go. There we go. Andrea? I think I, you know what, I, I've, I've talked about this at work a lot about how I have a work, there's a work Andrea and there's a personal Andrea. Work Andrea is sense. Home Andrea is sensibility. I love that answer. That's perfect. It's a perfect balance. Work-life balance. And Marita, what about yourself? I don't know. I'm, I I think I'm trying to commit myself as much as possible to being nonsense, actually. Perfect. <laughs> myself, um, definitely not sense. Um, full sensibility here but like uh, Marianne I relate to her because she falls down in the rain a lot now we have a guest with us today this is really exciting today we have with us Bridget Eileen Madden a poet blogger and our very own Jane Austen expert hello Bridget hi thanks for having me welcome you are so very welcome Welcome. what um, what are you sense or sensibility I'd have to say it's a both and as well I feel like, um, oh, you know what? I'm definitely sense when it comes to like work, but I'm sensibility when it comes to romance. I'm terrible at picking dudes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm an asshole magnet. <laughs> I love it. Wait, so which Austin character would that be? I mean, kind of all of them, right? Because sort of everyone's kind of an asshole. All the protagonists, even Darcy to start, and then... They go through a trial and then they come out the other side. And the thing is, like, that's a myth <laughs> that the novelists make. The men are don't usually change. They are the character that they are when you first meet them. So mm-hmm. if they're not nice to you at the start, they're not going to change. And um, that's why I'm in therapy to really live that, <laughs> live that truth. <laughs> that's like that saying when they say when they show you who they are the first time, believe them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Michaela, you said you're you're a Marianne. Mm, definitely. Yeah, definitely. 100%. I need some sense knocked into me. I would like to say that I'm an Elizabeth, but as the oldest of five daughters, I guess I that makes me the Jane. I, I know that's not sense and sensibility, but it's it's the Austin book that I like most resonate with because of that five sister dynamic. <laughs> yeah. Also, side fact, I don't think Austin writes five sisters very well. She can only write them in pairs. They never interact more than two at a time. <laughs> <laughs> so they're not all having a brawl in the living room like you and your sisters were. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> I think I relate the most to Darcy, like a little bit socially awkward, kind of abrasive and just done with everyone's bullshit. Yeah. That's why we all love you. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, Andrea, you have to give us one now. I'm going to say this because it's in my in my little talk. There's there is in the one of the adaptions I watched. Margaret had a like a more like a bigger role, 
And she has one line she says that I love. And I'm, I'm going to say I'm Margaret. And I'll tell you why later. Oh, a tease. <laughs> now you have to keep listening. Margaret is yet further evidence that Austin can't write more than two sisters. That poor yes. girl barely has a line in the whole novel. And you're oh, like, oh, she, wait, yeah, Margaret she's who? She's non-existent. <laughs> Yeah, Are you there literally anyone? It's me, Margaret. She's yeah. written out of a lot of adaptations too, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I asked my sisters, I was like, hey, did you guys remember that there was a third sister in Sense and Sensibility? And they're like, wait, what? <laughs> so am I correct? I haven't watched the the Emma Thompson version in quite a long time, but they use Margaret for sort of a little bit of context explanation in that film. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. and they, they make her um, a means of showing more personality for um, Edward Fair. Yes, that's the best Absolutely. way to probably put okay. it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and my my person, and I know everyone says this, but I'm just gonna be that that person that also says I definitely feel Elizabethan <laughs> in the Jane Austen sense because she um she's an act extrovert she's uh she's way into books um she also had you know the wrong taste in dudes um at first and then finally i'm i'm also looking for my darcy and i wouldn't mind it if it were colin firth <laughs> but <laughs> you have a friend you know, in this podcast a- then you do have a friend at this podcast marita you like colin first yes but as it happens he's been displaced as my favorite darcy so um Ooh. Well, who is your favorite Darcy? Tell us, Marita. It's non-canon Austin because it's it's the uh, Death Comes to Pemberley. Have you seen that? Oh Anybody yeah. Um, <laughs> so so they've got Matthew Reese's Darby. Oh, oh I see why not. Matthew yeah. Reese's Darcy. So yeah, I I you switched allegiances. That's fine. Well, uh, I mean, I'll I take Colin Firth then. It's fine. Oh yeah, well yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned for Marita's Matthew Reese uh, podcast that I know is incoming <laughs> at some point. <laughs> Do you think we'll get to be guests on it? My friend, one of my friends named Danielle, sends me like Christmas cards or invitations or whatever, and addresses them to me and Colin Firth. <laughs> or she'll write like Mrs. Bridget first on the, on the Christmas card. I love that. In our spreadsheet, that's who is listed as my spouse in our like address. Rest. So you're not it. that much of a national magnet. Not of Colin uh, Firth's on there. Yeah, that's why I have a fictional one because I can't <laughs> too much. <laughs> Plus, I love but, he says my name in Bridget Jones. Oh, oh, of course, of course. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Bex, you're going to kick us off with a synopsis and where um, Sense and Sensibility appeared in Ted Lasso. Sure. So I'm going to give a little bit of background. Sense and Sensibility was released in 1811. It's the first published novel by English author Jane Austen, although not her first written novel. That was Northanger Abbey in 1803, which is weirdly one of my favorites. I I think it's it's very underrated, but uh, that's just my personal bit. At the time of the original publication, it was published anonymously, and it tells the story of the Dashwood sisters, Eleanor, age 19, and Marianne, age 16, as they come of age and fall in love. The two have an older half-brother named John and a younger sister who is barely mentioned there, whose name is Margaret, and she's 13. The novel follows the Dashwood sisters and their widowed mother as they're forced to leave the family estate and move to Barton Cottage. 
Throughout the novel, the sisters find love, lose love, grieve, mature, and find love again. Fun fact, the word sensibility meant something more along the lines of sensitive and emotional in Austen's time. So while both sisters eventually learn to balance the two concepts, for the majority of the novel, Eleanor is meant to represent sense or reason and rationality, while Marianne represents sensibility. And according to Goodreads, Marianne Dashwood wears her heart on her sleeve, and when she falls in love with the dashing but unsuitable John Willoughby, she ignores her sister Eleanor's warning that her impulsive behavior leaves her open to gossip and innuendo. Meanwhile, Eleanor, always sensitive to social convention, is struggling to conceal her own romantic disappointment, even from those closest to her. Through their parallel experience of love and its threatened loss, the sisters learn that sense must mix with sensibility if they are to find personal happiness in a society where status and money govern the rules of love. So where does it show up in Ted Lasso? That's season three, episode seven, The Strings That Bind Us. Keely and Jack uh, have just started dating officially and they meet up for coffee or a little breakfast uh, where Jack presents Keely with a box. And inside is an, we're going to say, alleged first edition copy signed of Sense and Sensibility for Keeley. And in a move that scandalized book lovers around the world, she personalizes the dedication to Keeley, writing, Keeley, you go girl, in blue marker above Austin's signature. Criminal. (laughs) Painful. Yeah, I'm just, I would really like to commend the props person who made the alleged first edition book look like it was defaced when it quite obviously wasn't. Right? Okay. Yeah. Promise me. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly what happened. Because it was originally published, the first edition was published anonymously. It wouldn't Mm, have been signed. That's right. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And I think it was published in multiple parts, if I'm correct, Bridget. Actually, yeah. which I sort of heard as well, they, they didn't know that it was Jane Austen was was dead before they knew that she wrote it. Is that correct? Well, it was like an open secret. So she it it wasn't published, quote unquote, anonymously. It didn't say anonymous. It said by a lady, just to give the like um, consequence of yes, this is a gentlewoman who wrote this. Her brother Henry was not good at keeping the secret, and he he bragged about the fact that she was the author to the point where everyone knew who she was by the time um, Mansfield Park had come out. And then when she was working on Emma, she was invited by the Prince Regent's like librarian, if you will, to um, his residence. She didn't meet the Prince Regent, but she met his like secretary librarian guy and then he told her that she was invited to dedicate emma to the prince regent which basically meant she had to do it she actually hated the prince regent but obviously being asked to do something (laughs) means you have to do it it was like kind of damning with faint praise the dedication was super like i've been asked to do this so i'm doing this here it's shady. It was a shady yeah. one, was it? <laughs> yeah, it. it was really tepid. So, but it was all done. the tea here. <laughs> and if you want to see a fun representation of of her going to the library uh, at uh, Carlton House, which was the residence of the Prince Regent, 
there's an author named Stephanie Barron who writes Jane Austen mysteries and Jane Austen is the protagonist and in their cozy mysteries. And they, so it takes Jane Austen's biography and, you know, there's this legend that it's a true, it's not a legend. It's true that her sister, Cassandra, um, burned a lot of her letters, destroyed a lot of her letters. So the author, Stephanie Behrens is like, Oh, I've, I've found and, and am transcribing all of these journals that of hers. And you kind of get the missing biography filled in on these journals that outline her adventures. And each one is a murder mystery. So there's a very interesting one, the Waterloo map that, that deals with the Jane Austen's right. visit to Carlton house. There's some Austin Janeite nerdness for you. <laughs> We love nerdness here. It's most welcome. And um, you're going to kick us off today, Bridget, with a piece, and we're really excited to hear from you. Okay. Well, I know how you all like to address outside issues or, you know, bigger issues with this. So the first thing I want to mention, in addition to the good synopsis that Bex gave of um, Sense and Sensibility, is a point from this book, which is one of my favorite books about Jane Austen. It's called Jane Austen, The Secret Radical by um, Helena Kelly. And in it, she talks about how it was really hard to be overtly radical in the 1800s because it was right after the French Revolution. And so there were you know, like your mail was monitored. It was an autocracy. And if you wanted to be subversive in any way, you had to be very, very low key about it. The analysis that Helena Kelly does of, of each novel of Jane Austen puts in context, like the writing of the novel within the current times and like history of it, of what was going on at the time. So the first thing I wanted to mention was how um, Sense and Sensibility is a huge critique of what Mary Wollstonecraft who wrote uh, A Vindication for the Rights of Women, was critiquing in her nonfiction, you know, asserting that in A, in a Vindication of the Rights of Women, Wollstonecraft asserted that uh, children of the same parents should have an equal right to the inheritance of the parents because it is the lack of the Dashwood sisters' inheritance that drives the entire story. Without that kind of uh, capitalist ideal of making sure that people could hold on to the land and retain power, the, the story of Sense and Sensibility wouldn't have existed in the first place. And one of the things that Dr. Kelly points out in her book is that whatever the domestic contribution of the Dashwood women, the solid comfort, cheerfulness they provided, the attention they've given, this is like to the uncle who basically disinherit or doesn't give them anything in their inheritance. It's worth nothing at all. Its value can easily be outweighed, ignored, dismissed. The secret radicalness of Sense and Sensibility is that it is actually a feminist treaty about how bad it is to have permogeniture and how uh, disinheriting or not letting women inherit anything or have any of their own rights really leaves them to the whims of the people in their family who do have that power. And in that conversation that you have with Fanny Dashwood, and uh, John Dashwood, the older sister and the sister-in-law of Eleanor, Marianne, and Margaret, you see how the whim of self-serving family member can destroy the happiness and the comfort 
of their family based on capitalism. <laughs> and wasn't um wasn't Fanny played by I forget her name, the same actress who There Harriet, are two what's... Fanny Dashwoods in Ted Lasso. So there's a thing I like to call I like to play called Jane MDB, Jane Movie Database. And it's like noticing who from Jane Jane Austen is being portrayed in whatever else, usually British, that I'm watching, right? So for Jane MDB, the Christmas dentist, Claire Skinner, she's actually a double, um, she's a double Jane MDB if you count the Bridget Jones stories as part of the Jane MDB universe, the Jane Austen universe. Because as you all talked about with the Bridget Jones novel, it's like a, it's an adaptation, if you will. So Claire Skinner plays Magda, who's like a composite character of kind of um, Charlotte, kind of Aunt Gardner from, from Pride and Prejudice for Bridget in Bridget Jones. And then in the Sense and Sensibility miniseries of 2008, she plays Mrs. Fanny Dashwood. And then in the 1995 Sense and Sensibility, um, Harriet Walter, who plays Deborah Welton, also plays Mrs. Fanny Dashwood. So it's kind of funny how in the Ted Lasso universe, two very like sweet people end up playing the one of the main villains of Sense and Sensibility. And that's the one that gets mentioned. The other thing is that, you know, I know Kenny Madison of uh, Lasso Cast has made fun of the fact that um, Santa Claus is canon, so anything's possible in the Ted Lasso world. But it is kind of funny that when Keeley gets the novel, the first volume of Sense and Sensibility, and she says, I love the movie more, that means in the in the Ted Lasso world, the movie exists where Deborah Welton is playing Fanny Dashwood. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, and it's just kind of the same thing with, uh, with Bridget Jones, which makes it funny because uh, Nick Mohammed has a little um, bit part in Bridget Jones 3. And as they're all talking about the Bridget Jones movies during Rainbow, he's off to the side there and he exists in that movie as an actor. And then he exists in Ted Lasso as an I actor. I did not know that. That is yeah. fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. I love all this. That is fascinating. I love that. How meta. <laughs> If you look at the, the names of the people uh, who are um, side characters, Phoebe, Nora, they're often homages. Someone noticed that Nora Ephron's parents' names are the same names that of Phoebe and, um, whoop, I lost it. What's um, Ted's son's name? Henry. Henry right. yeah. Phoebe and Henry were Nora Ephron's parents' names. So the three children are Nora, Phoebe, and Henry. Very smart. Is that on purpose? Is that an homage? You know, and you have you have those other characters who are named after characters from Dickens, from you know Mary Shelley. So is Jane Payne, who was Phoebe Walsh, who was the author of the Strings That Bind Us. So is that why Sense and Sensibility makes its appearance? Because and and her name is Jane because she she's a big fan of Jane Austen. And we also know that Brett Goldstein is a big fan of Jane Austen because when he interviewed the Muppets, he asked them if they would ever do uh, Muppets Pride and Prejudice. 
of which they should absolutely oh Oh, yeah and i i know he's too old for it but i still would think brett goldstein would make a wonderful mr darcy yes He's he, you know, Brett Goldstein is a pretty close second to my Colin Firth crushes. Impossible. <laughs> I can suspend disbelief on the age, no problem. I'm fine. Yeah, with that. totally. <laughs> I mean, right, Miss Piggy's no spring chicken herself, and I imagine she'd be playing <laughs> Elizabeth. So, <laughs> no, you know, I think that she would be an awesome Mrs. Bennett. Oh and gosh, I don't know who yes. we could have as Elizabeth. I mean, Kermit in drag. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. so something like that so yeah i was thinking about how there is a connection with jane and ted you know the lineage wise they jane austen is considered the godmother of rom-coms and there's a lot of different articles out there that kind of make that reference and then there's a whole slate article about how ted lasso is a a long rom-com right it's especially hits you over the head with that concept in rainbow but i don't think that it's a rom-com in the sense that the end goal is uh, about romantic partnership but i think it's instead the love of lady football (laughs) we're okay um, with that yeah yeah so I'll in take a, that but if you so in that context i think that you could say uh, ted lasso is a literary descendant of jane austen's work based on all of those connections so first of all jack you're going to deface that that volume that's practically precious and i really think they should have had a disclaimer like no practically priceless autograph uh, uh, artifacts were, ju- were actually yes. based in the making of this episode. Yes, absolutely. They need to, if they've not got that in there, they need to retrospectively put it in now. Yes, <laughs> yes. And then also, you know, the beginning of uh, The Strings That Find Us is a lot like the beginning of You've Got Mail, which is Anora Ephron, which is, which also references, like You've Got Mail references Pride and Prejudice a lot and is kind of an homage to that. So then you, like, you see it again in the like son of daughter of son of daughter, descendant wise, book wise, story wise. So that brings us to the book itself. Like there it is in her hands, in Keeley's hands. And I know you guys have talked a lot about how we don't see the female characters with books often, except for Sharon. So finally we see it in her hands and she says, I love the book. She says, I love the movie better. <laughs> which is yeah, funny it's because, a little a little painful <laughs> uh, it's a great adaptation though emma thompson deserved that oscar that mm-hmm. was a, it was fascinating yeah. time in in jay knight worlds because when that came out sense and sensibility so did clueless which is uh based off of emma so did gwyneth paltrow's emma so did bbc version of emma with kate uh beckinsale is that right the right kate i don't know there's so many Kate. yeah i'm sure it is i know <laughs> we're both wrong so yeah and so did the pride and prejudice miniseries with jennifer ellie and uh, uh colin Firth. 
Hey, Colin Firth. The one with Colin Firth. That's all we have. And his wet white shirt. (laughs) Why is his wet white shirt like hotter than like just naked abs? Uh, It's because it's like tantalizing, you know? It's the implication. The mystery. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Well, plus you're not supposed to, I mean, if you go without a cravat, you're, you're scandalous. So to go around in a wet white shirt is like, ooh. Dirty boys. It's like, Elizabeth might have shown an ankle and that'd be the same. (laughs) Anyway, so um, there was an article comparing Keeley and Rebecca from Collider um, that compared Rebecca to Keeley. And, you know, I think that the author of the article correctly called Austin the mother of rom-coms. And so that it was showing us the relation. And she says that Keely is like Marianne because she puts her heart on her sleeve. And Rebecca is more like Eleanor because she sublimates her own emotional needs for the sake of those she's responsible for. So I can see those, but it gets to falling apart if you extend it because... Rebecca is subjected to the trial of a love bomber in Rupert, which Eleanor has the sense to avoid her whole life, thankfully, right? And meanwhile, while Kel- while Keely is very sensible in the um, very sensible in the emotional sense of the old time ways, she's also very sensible in the new thinking about her PR business. She's a dedicated serious businesswoman hence she gets her own spread in um see what whatever magazine it was vanity fair is it yeah gotta be fair to remember yes yeah and 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 she's also considerate of people's feelings and like the manners of she's never like cruel or rude to people the character of keely whereas marianne is cruel and and um cares more about her following her sense sensibility or emotions than for the sake of politeness yeah I I noticed that was something the movie did really well actually is she never said thank you once up until when she did and it really mattered and it stood out and that was really well done in the adaptation I think Mm -hmm. yeah and she has that wonderful speech towards the end the novel where right before Eleanor tells her uh all that Will- Willoughby had said to to Eleanor to kind of redeem sort of Willoughby, where she's like, I should have been more more grateful, more gracious to all these people. So then my thesis goes like this. You got to ignore three things. First, ignore any kind of like straight, exact linear parallels and think more metaphorically speaking. Think more like composites, illusions, evocations. What is it? What's it, what's going to be evoked? What does it make you vaguely think of? What does it remind you of? Not necessarily a straight like, this is why this person's like this character, and this is why this person's this character. It's like things that happen in the novel are comparable to things that happen in the show. Also, second one, ignore gender. Because we're already subverting gender because we have our Willoughby, our alleged Willoughby or whatever as Jack who's a woman, right? So if we don't think about comparing people on gender lines, then we can get a different kind of, we can think of different uh, comparisons. to Ignore gender is just great life advice in general. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, 
don't make romance like I said before don't make romantic relationships that end game make like your their either football or their work and passion for their work and what they're doing in life as the end game so in which case I don't think of sense and sensibility rep being represented by Rebecca and Keely. I'm going to leave that for a second, and I'll tell you what I what who I do think uh, the the Keely is like and Rebecca. So <clears throat> Keely is all charisma and charm. I think uh, a character who parallels her, who is no charisma and charm, is Edward Ferrers. <laughs> I mean, and they're the exact opposites of each other. And this is going to end up in a nice little bow at the end. So Keely has a dream to go against her expected role as being a model influencer and instead take a more serious profession, which she has a passion for. Edward Ferris has a dream to take orders as a clergy. And at the time, if you were the firstborn son, more often than not, you were expected to just inherit the land, be the landowner, manage the land. And maybe even seek something like a minister of parliament or something like that if you weren't part of the aristocracy in the House of Lords, but you were a landowning man. So for him to want to take orders, which is what usually goes to a second son, and it's against the wishes of his mother who has all the money and all the power to like say who gets to have the family money is like a real kind of subversive thing for him to to want to be a clergyman especially against his mother's wishes so keely's money is taken away from her when she goes against the wishes of her capitalist driven backers and she won't apologize for sending sexy selfies which she damn well shouldn't <laughs> and edward goes against his mother's wishes and takes orders to mm -hmm. be a clergyman and then gets disinherited i like that how does that get resolved for those characters? This is what made me, this is what got me into thinking of, wait a second, this is, if we stop thinking about gender, the, here are some real parallels. Keely's rich friend gives her a means to continue to pursue her dream job. Colonel Brandon, not close friend of Edward Ferrer's, but a connection of Edward Ferrer's, has a lot of money and a living to give and sweeps in and says, I feel for you. I want your dream to come true because I can relate to how you are dealing with like, like disappointing family and like being thwarted in your dreams. I'm going to just back you. Here's just take, take the living. And Rebecca says here, just take the buddy. She's I've got that in my pocket. Can That's brilliant. Today? That's yeah. I love that. <laughs> so also, Keely has a fickle, manipulative, quick to abandon her business partner, who essentially ghosts her also as a romantic partner, basically to stay on the side on the good side of the people with all the money. That is why I think Jack is actually more like Lucy Steele. Because she does the same thing. She is, you know, she manipulates her way into the family of the Ferrers and Steels. And then even when she's kicked out of the house, she finds a way to manipulate her way back into that family by like sucking up to Mrs. Fairs. Then she marries Robert and gets all that money. Right. And she's kind of a sociopath. And I think Jack is a little sociopathic. <laughs> I'm going to interrupt you because it's actually, I actually wrote it at the end of mine and I just have to ask, how did Lucy still get Robert? How did that, she did, right. she did just manipulate the mother. Is that really it? it yeah. And they, you know, 
the one of the things, one of the reasons why lots of people love Jane Austen, why she endures a lot more than her contemporaries, is because of her economy of words. So what people put into a whole novel, a good writer puts into a chapter, a great writer puts into a paragraph, Jane Austen puts into a sentence. So you'll see a whole novel in this at the towards the end when it's there's just some exposition explaining how it is that Lucy manipulated her way into into she basically did what she always did, which is butter people up like the Middletons, like the um like the fairs, you know, and she she writes this like terrible letter. I think you see the letter, right? Don't we see the letter? That she yeah. writes and she's just like, oh, I'm letting you go. I'm letting you go. And that that's sort of like that dumb text that that uh, Jack sends. Oh, I didn't even know that they, I'm so sorry they sent the, they didn't tell you ahead of time that they were yeah. taking away your funding. I, if I had known, I would have. It's the sort of like, oh, I didn't know. I'm going to let you go for your sake when really it's for their own. Like, and there's part of that where you if you think about it, you can empathize with a woman in their position in each of their times with this idea of like, this is what I was told it takes to survive. So this is what I'm going to do. It doesn't make them likable, but it does like there is a, a way in which you can go, OK, like, yeah, that's 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 fucked up. But I see why they went in that direction. You see sympathy for that type of decision making in Pride and Prejudice with Charlotte and how she goes with Mr. Collins because it's icky and gross but she says like I'm 27 I'm a burden to my family I don't have any other choices this is like the least worst possibility in my opinion so Austin does give some sympathy to characters who are kind of mercenary like that but yeah. I think Charlotte does it in a way that makes you feel kind of bad for her. Whereas Lucy right. does it in a way where you're like, well, they're trying knows. to do it like <laughs> in a man's world. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that's like trying to play the the masculine role of like, well, this is this is what it takes to get it as opposed to, well, this is my only option. And that's that's how I see it. Anyway. Not- justification, right? Like you're just, you know, they're justifying it themselves. They probably don't see themselves as doing anything wrong. It's like you say, they're just surviving. Mm hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I have a little more sympathy for Lucy Steele than I do for like um, Bingley's sister. I I don't have um, any sympathy yeah. for Bingley's sister. I just in Pride and Prejudice. Anyway, <laughs> she's very snobby and like so so unlikable. <laughs> Definitively unlikable. And and hypocritical because she's critical of people in trade, whereas her grandfather made all their fortune in trade. Anyway, so one more parallel, right? And then we'll tie it up in a in a nice bow on who why I think like uh, Keeley is sort of the the Edward Ferris character, the coworker who's been by her side and offering sound, practical, genial company is still there at the bitter end and eventually becomes her business partner once the business is saved through the money from a friend. Barbara. Mm-hmm. We and love Barbara here. So Barbara is is Keeley's Eleanor. Meanwhile, Barbara is most like Edward Ferrers, right? She has personality-wise, you have to really get to know them in order to find yourself attached to them and who they are as characters. Like 
it, it, in introducing um, Edward Ferris at the beginning of the novel, Austin is like, you know, he seems diffident at first, but then as people talk to him more that you warmed up to him more and you got to see how genial he was. And in Eleanor's eyes, he actually becomes more and more handsome the more she gets to know him. And it's sort of like in our, our eyes as viewers of the show, we get to love Barbara more and more the more we get to know about her, even though she's very diffident and stiff at first. By the end, um, you know, when she's got her juicy couture butt, and she likes <laughs> clothes to tell the truth. You're like, yes, I love her. And I like that actor because I like that show, Agatha Raisin, and she was she was on that. Katie Wicks is amazing. She's in Ghosts as well. And unfortunately, she's not in all the series, but oh my gosh, she's an absolute godsend. You're a godsend, Katie Wicks. <laughs> yeah, totally. Love her. Um, so who is the real Eleanor and Marianne? Who is sense and who is sensibility? in this story and why is it in of all people's hands keely's hands keely i think you could also say is like the jane austen maybe or the reader of the book so who is she reading whose sense and whose sensibility roy and jamie in my opinion <laughs> thinking about it now like, I love again, that reveal. <laughs> it's not it's not complete parallels. It's not, as a matter of fact, some of it's quite opposite, right? Eleanor and Marianne love each other from the very beginning and they know that they love each other and they care about each other and they're sweet to each other and they, they're kind and a loving example of siblinghood. Roy and Jamie are the opposite of that. They don't like each other. They're mean to each other. They, they call each other names, whatever, right? <clears throat> But as far as character development goes, Jamie and Marianne have a, a very similar path and transition, right? Marianne, after um, illness and near death, resolves to be more like Eleanor. And then Jamie, after the crisis of Zavo um, and no longer being the star player of the team, resolves to be more like Roy and discipline and training. He's got his little, um, you know, headlamp on. Let's go, coach. At, uh, at four in the morning. <laughs> so before these crises, uh, Jamie and Marianne are characters who lean into sense of sensibility in the old fashioned sense. They're callous of feelings of others in favor of the passion for self-expression, their lack of maturity, their feeling of superiority. And so Marianne's speech to Eleanor when they're walking at Barton Cottage after she's recovered from her illness, when she's saying, it's like, had I died in what peculiar misery should I have left you, my nurse, my friend, my sister? You had seen all the fretful selfishness of my latter days. How should I have lived in your memory? My mother, too. And then she says, whenever I looked towards the past, I saw some duty neglected or some failing indulged. Everybody seemed injured by me. The kindness, the unceasing kindness of Mrs. Jennings, I had repaid with ungrateful contempt to the Middletons, the Palmers, even to John and Fanny. I had given them less than their due, but you, you above all, who had been wronged by me because I wasn't there for you, what she says. So I was re-watching The Strings That Bind Us, and I realized that um, Jamie realizing how total football isn't working because he isn't part of it reminds me very much of the epiphany of selflessness that Eleanor has. So when he says, don't play to me, play through me, 
it's the same kind of thing. Like I have not been listening to you, Ted, who can be like your Mrs. Jennings, like goofy, but has a heart of gold. Right. I haven't been listening to you. Now I'm going to listen to you. I've been like ignoring what you have to say to me, Roy, as a coach or trying to get you to like coach me, but like really not seeming susceptible enough to, to your mind. And now I'm ready to, and this is the, this is what I'm saying. I'm saying I need to stop being a, like self-centered and start working with everybody. And even the very end where the, with the side story of um, Sam and his restaurant and it being destroyed, you see Jamie as part of the team there giving up his time, trying to surprise Sam and help repair the restaurant. And it's sort of like how Marianne becomes part of Barton and then Delaford as the matron of it and is like um, through exposition, we're told, is a benevolent one who's caring and thoughtful and the type of um, matron of society. With her buddy, Eleanor, her sister, Eleanor, they are the uh, matrons of that society owned by Colonel Brandon. Meanwhile, Roy and Janie both end up as leaders at AFC Richmond, which is owned by Rebecca. <laughs> Roy, on the other hand, is not as like obvious because it's not as much a like boom, boom, boom. But there's things like sense, common sense, you know, in that in that sense, um, almost to the point of being perceived as unfeeling, but actually just deeply reserved is what both Eleanor and Roy are like. They both have a deep love. They keep it suppressed. Roy for Keeley, but also Roy for his friends, Phoebe, Grandpa, for Blanky, for Lady Football. And then at the end, Eleanor bursts into tears when she learns Edward is still unmarried. So her sensibility is finally displayed. And at the very end, we see Roy going into Dr. Sharon's office. So he's ready to be vulnerable and uh, realizes he needs to process her, his emotions. And and also the puns, you know, that scene with the puns might be, the, you know, oh, the transitional yeah. part. I hate what you've done to me. <laughs> I hate what you've done to me. With all these easy tough things. Yes, Brilliant. he's starting to see like the the benefit of joy and fun as opposed to just always being this almost militaristic like straight laced guy. Um, yeah, I think Jack is a composite of Lucy Steele and Willoughby, like especially the part where Keely and Jack are mini golfing and she um, has to she denies her connection to Keely and like Lucy denies her connection to Edward and so but Rupert is the most Willoughby-ish of all the characters because he's relatively poor and so is Willoughby relatively speaking poor right relative terms <laughs> not actual poor of for 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 uh, a gentleman if you will uh makes his money then uh off of like you know ways love bombs turns out to be a selfish womanizing bastard gets a young woman pregnant, gets called out for his behavior. His now, and all of the, the call out for bad behavior comes off screen or off book, if you will. So Colonel Brandon has his off book duel with Willoughby and the secretary and uh, the second Rebecca. Bex. <laughs> Bex off screen have the call out where um, Rupert gets his come up in, if you will. And then he has charms when he needs it, but he doesn't feel any actual kind of love 
to whomever it's it's like all a, just a self-centered type of thing and so will it be the wanker fits in will it be the yeah, wanker fits in really well yeah, yeah. Um, so where does Ted and Rebecca fit in all this? I think that they are just like they're barely in the strings that bind us. Uh, they're more like the Jane Austen of all the side stories. They have, um, as Trent Crim's exposition at the end of the episode indicates, set everyone else up to live their stories and their lives and live them well and better for having been part of Ted and Rebecca's like world. So it's kind of like they're the they're the Jane Austen of the story. That's really, really made me think. You know, I love the fact you just dropped gender from it and that it makes much more sense when you did that, but it really made me think. I, that's fantastic. Yeah. Lots yeah, of great parallels. Awesome. Yeah. This is the most fun homework. <laughs> yeah. I I really, I, I have this in my, in my thing too, but I really struggle reading older books because they're filled with so much sexism and racism and, and I realize that if they're all from their time and I know that I like, I'm the problem. I'm the one who can't like, get over certain things. Um, but I really want to read that book now The Jane Austen, what was that? Jane Austen, oh, the, the, Secret Jane Radical. Austen the Secret Radical. Now, this, is, like, this is like a controversial book. There are a lot of people who don't like this book because it's, it's like a Rorschach test. If you are a kind of liberal person, I feel you like this book. And <laughs> if you're not, yeah. you're like, like what does that remind me of? The conversation, Marita, that you had about It's a Wonderful Life, where oh. it got put on a list of... Oh, like yeah, a, people like... Yeah. yeah, it was like on an FBI list of subversive films, but all these conservatives are claiming it now. So, you know, I, I tend to dive into the literature when I do my, my pieces on this. And of course, there is so much Austin scholarship, but it is all over the map. She was feminist. She was anti-feminist. She was even something I saw referred to as a Tory feminist, and I don't know what that is. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's an oxymoron. That, that's my point. Um, but but yeah, so the, the Austin scholarship goes in all sorts of directions. But yeah, it was the same way with It's a Wonderful Life. I think whenever something becomes beloved, and is universally acknowledged as a classic. Everybody wants to claim it for their side. Um, it's just that some people are wrong. So, <laughs> universally acknowledged that. There you go. <laughs> do you notice how when they finally do play total football, Rebecca's holding on to Keely's hand and like shouting and um, like breathing like a mom birthing a baby i didn't i did not pick up on that yeah, yeah, I pick up on that, yeah. that she's holding keely's hand and like bearing down and, and like kind of like grunting and shouting is what you see in the rom-com version of a birth of a baby <laughs> um, that could be the birth of her treating the team finally like a family like yeah. Family. yeah 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 exactly. so metaphorically metaphorically yeah <laughs> And now, time for some comments from you. Harhar76 on Twitter has some excellent comments. She says, Older Colonel Brandon, ageing player Roy Kent, who has in his care a young girl, who is slightly boring but with a heart of gold. I love that. To join in on the fun, message us on Twitter 
at Beards Book Club or send us an email to beardsbookclub at gmail.com. Bridget, that was fantastic. Bex, yeah, you're going to take that. us on. So I want to talk about Jane Austen and like the creators of the show Ted Lasso and the character. So Jason Sudeikis is a big part of this. Uh, more so than things, specific things in the episode or specific things in the novel. I want to talk about the, sort of that creation and and the the approaches to creating their works. I read Sense and Sensibility as part of the complete novels of Jane Austen. It's a an edition put out by Penguin Classics. It has like all the novels in it. And so I've decided like, yes, I'm going to attempt to read all of them. I've read Pride and Prejudice like 800 times, but I'm still rereading it as part of this. And it even includes Lady Susan. So, you know, it's it's got it's got a whole bunch of stuff. Anyway, as part of this collection, there is an introduction written by Karen Joy Fowler. And that's where I'm going to be taking a lot of my ideas about Austin from just because it was right there in the, in the book. From some of the things she wrote, I remember reading that introduction and going, oh, wow, like, yeah, there's parallels here, right? Well, I was reading this introduction specifically, I was thinking about the evolution of the character of Ted Lasso and Jason Sudeikis as the creator of that character. So um, first, I'm going to start off with some of the parallels between the two, and then I'll touch on a couple key differences towards the end that might have more to do with like the historical time frame differences and the medium, uh, the differences in medium as well. So the introduction starts out with this this paragraph, and I, I kind of truncated it a bit just for time, but the quote more or less says, some writers were admired by academics and taught in the academy. Other writers are read solely for fun. Only a handful of writers manage to be both kinds. Jane Austen is among those who occupy the rare intersection of academic and popular culture. And I was like, well, if that isn't Ted Lasso, <laughs> you know, it really is that kind of show. Because they're even outside of academic circles, there are still fans who really dig into the show and analyze the characters, you know, the plot lines, the mise-en-scene. I don't know, the appearance of books in the show, maybe. I don't know anyone who does that, but... <laughs> Who would do that? <laughs> Who would analyze a whole bookshelf and have the greatest <laughs> time of their life? I don't know. Couldn't couldn't be us. I mean, like, I just did a Google search while I was preparing these notes. And so I wanted to mention uh, a few things that appeared on Google Scholar. So, you know, you've got your super fans and everything, but you've also got actual like academic research on Ted Lasso. So on the first page, a hug for humanity, meta modernism and masculinity on television in Ted Lasso. That was one Ted Lasso, an analysis of the representation of cultural differences and how they are handled. Ted Lasso and the politics of ethical manhood. Trent Krim, The Independent, The Image of the Journalist in Ted Lasso, right? And that's just like titles. I didn't go into them and, and explore. So maybe they're terrible. Maybe they're amazing. I don't know. But Google Scholar, you just put in the words Ted Lasso and this comes up. But on the, on the other hand, like Ted Lasso is a show that you can just watch and enjoy like having some dessert, right? It's like candy. 
like I have a lot of sisters, as I mentioned, um, and most of them have watched the show as well. But they were just content with like watching it once, enjoying it, and moving on with their lives. And I was like, couldn't be me. <laughs> That's my husband as well. He's like, I've watched it once. What do you need me to watch it again for? I was like, oh, blasphemous. Exactly. Exactly. You know, again, they don't feel this need to dissect the writing or analyze the characters or interpret meanings beyond what is shown on the screen. And both approaches are valid, right? And so that's the same thing with Austin. Like both approaches to reading her are valid. You want to just read her for fun? I mean, I read Pride and Prejudice probably four or five times just for fun before I ever thought deeply about it at all. I, I know I mentioned in the introduction that Austin's first book was Northanger Abbey, even though it wasn't published first. And this to me is, you know, so it's a parody of the Gothic novel tradition that was like kind of she was on the tail end of like that. I, I'm not an expert in that area, but that's my understanding. I wanted to talk about the evolution of Austin's writing, right? Because the book wasn't published when it was written, but it is probably, at least to me, it was the most obvious at employing the the gothic tropes in all of her work. Um, it's like very explicitly a parody of the gothic traditions. Um and I think that parody is important to note. So this made me think about Ted Lasso and the NBC commercials uh, that that aired when they're bringing the Premier League to the television in the U.S. Total parody, right? Total ridiculousness. Absolutely, like, so silly, so over the top, parodying this idea of what a, a football coach, an American football coach, uh, teaching, coaching um, soccer for distinction purposes uh, would be like, right? But I don't think that those commercials were really, truly, fully appreciated until after people had engaged in the show. Like, they they did their purpose. They served their purpose at the time. That was fine. But, like, people really got into them and thought, oh, well, let's dissect this and, like, do a comparison after the show had come out. I think 20% of those people were probably just there for the short shorts, but <laughs> I fully agree. Yeah, oh, well. You know, that also reminds me of something else that I was thinking of because um, I re-listened to your Bridget Jones uh, episode in part of my homework for this episode. And um, again, with the switching of genders, uh, when it comes to story parallels, if we think of Ted Lasso as Bridget Jones, at first he's a parody, right? And then he's a more earnest, serious person. Yeah. Which happens I'm... in the progression of the novels of Bridget Jones, as well as the progression of the movies of Bridget Jones and her portrayal of those. And Plus I want to get enemies. into some of that um, when I talk Ooh. about when I talk about the character of Ted and like the episodes as well, like the, the episodic struck or the the episode style in the structure yeah. of the show like how that changes over the three seasons so i am gonna come back to that for sure <laughs> um so there was another quote from this introduction that said a word often applied to austin by her earliest readers both as praise and complaint was natural one of these readers commenting on mansfield park described it as less a novel than quote, the history of a family party in the country, very natural and the characters well drawn. And 
okay, people might push back on this and I get it, but like, I do think there's something oddly natural about Ted Lasso. Like, okay, sure. It's unnatural that he would be an American football coach hired to coach a premier league team. Yes, that is absurd. That is very silly. But if we look past that particular element, the characters and their relationships to one another throughout the show are all very natural, right? There's communication, there's miscommunication. There are happy feelings and frustrated feelings. There's growth for many characters and a lack of growth for others. This is natural. This is like humanity. This is how we are and how we exist in the real world. Um, And, and, the, the author of the introduction goes on to say, so Austin's plots make use of standard gothic tropes and seemier, uglier realities. But in choosing which story to tell and how that story will play out, Austin turns away from the overtly dramatic to make the more probable and therefore more fictionally surprising choice. And so this is where I want to talk about that the that episode style, right? That... Um, In season one in particular, Ted Lasso makes use of the standard sitcom tropes in these early episodes. Um, But then time-wise and content-wise, it really evolves into more hour-long dramatic episodes. I mean, we have an episode that's literally an hour and six minutes, right? (laughs) Like it, It really shifts. And just like just like Austin's writing shifted, right? She... So even within the sitcom style episodes, I think there's a lot of heart. I mean, sure, other sitcoms have heart. I'm not trying to say that they don't. But this heart has a through line and is more episodic or is less episodic, excuse me, than traditional sitcoms, at least in my perspective, because you're you're kind of ramping up. And if we look at the evolution of Austin's writing from taking North and Jurabi, which she wrote first, as this very strong parody of the Gothic tradition with lots of Gothic elements in it into her later works, which fit into there's a little less of the overtly Gothic in it and more of that sort of like, I don't know, like just daily life, like just, just existence and, and, and being, I think that's part of what we see. Even our, cartoonish characters like Jamie in season one become a lot less cartoonish as we go on, right? We see depth to these characters. Uh, That is, it is so funny that you say that because Austin herself described Pride and Prejudice as light and bright and sparkling and mentioned in her letters how she wanted to get a little more, she wanted to, to, not be more serious, but not have as much of that effervescence and and delve more. And then that's what happens. Like Mansfield Park is a very serious novel. Emma is more experimental than anything in part mystery. And then Persuasion, which is a lot of Austenites very favorite, even more than Pride and Prejudice, is kind of everything. It's it's and it is a beautiful, beautiful, heart wrenching romance. And and if we look at season three of Ted Lasso, like there's all of those pieces in it, right? That evolution is there. I love that. I didn't know that. And this that's is exciting. My favorite comedy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and same thing with, with persuasion. You're like, I love this love story. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
I do want to talk a little bit about the supporting cast of Ted Lasso, but also in the Austin novels. So Fowler goes on to say the supporting cast of an Austin novel is half the delight of her books. Each is sharp, distinct, memorable. Meanwhile, her main characters have all the fullness and multidimensionality that a reader hopes for. So like, I'm going to just take Ted, Rebecca, Roy, and Keeley as the four main characters. Look, I know there are more main characters. They're like, it's an ensemble show. But to me, those are the four that that I think of as the core four. And they're all such multidimensional characters throughout the show. You know, Rebecca starts out being painted as the big bad, but we learn that there's a lot more to her. Ted is a lovable goof, but he's dealing with pain that he doesn't want anyone to see, and he's not willing to even acknowledge himself. In the pilot, we get the idea that Keely is just going to be like, oh, the football player's girlfriend, right? Like, that's sort of how she's painted in that initial interaction. But her story is so much more complex than that, as you you talked about earlier. And Roy is that, like, gruff old-timer, you know, yeah, he's supposed to be in his 30s or something right but like he's old because it's football but as we learn there are reasons for that behavior right he's got his defenses up for very specific reasons then if we shift and look at the players and the other supporting characters they truly are at least half the delight of the show (laughs) at least i mean my favorite characters, some of our, our favorite characters across here, right? Sam, Colin, Colin. Isaac. <laughs> I, he was second. I listed him second. <laughs> just, just in case. I was I was just getting that in there. Just in case. And I got Isaac in there as well. You know, uh, May, the pub lads, Phoebe, Nora. Like, you get the point. Like, all of them. There's something great about each of them. They all add something to the story. Even the ones we don't like, right? Like a like a Rupert. Okay, moving on. Fowler says, meanwhile, the Austin cottage industry continues apace. Every year, more sequels, more spinoffs, more books that use Austin characters or Austin plots appear in the bookstores, right? So it's all about what came out of that. Like she wrote these books. They're out in the world. There you go. Like that's all she that's all she wrote kind of thing. I mean, we don't have a spinoff for Ted Lasso yet, but they definitely left room for multiple branches that that could take. But there is a lot of fan art, fanfic. I I looked, I did a quick search. There's over 8,000 Ted Lasso fics on AO3, which, I mean, isn't going to compete with like a Supernatural, which has over 100,000. I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to put that in And I want to know how many of them are Ted Becca. I didn't, I didn't do a search okay. to be more specific with that, but I, I would say at least half of them would be my guess. How many are erotic, Ted Becca? Probably that's, three quarters of them. Yeah, um, easily. I mean, that's that's a good chunk of it, right? But all of these, these creations, fan vids and compilations, podcasts, <clears throat> plenty of those out here, right? You know, all of this stuff has come out of this character who was created to be a goofy, over-the-top way of introducing, you know, soccer to the United States at the Premier League level. And this is another quote that really got me. The first thing Hollywood does is fix Austin's unsatisfying men, which in turn makes happy endings out of her more interesting 
as happy as could be managed endings, right? Because that's what I like about Austin's books is that we don't, it's not like everything is always tied up super neatly in a boat. Yeah, you know, okay, most people get like the love interest or some love interest at the end. We can't have these single women, you know, not not too many of them anyway. Uh, how dare they? But there wasn't a redemption arc for Willoughby, right? We didn't get this like, oh yeah, those two that we thought were so cute in the beginning are living happily ever after now, right? We get, okay, it's time to move on and be more a little more uh, practical about my decisions and like who is actually a good human in my life what kinds of relationships are important to me and it's not always romantic right and that's what I think like I think Jason and all the other writers as well did a really good job with this sort of as happy as could be managed ending it's not everything is sunshine and rainbows at the end of Ted Lasso Right. Yeah, we see that scene where where everybody who's still there is like having a cookout together or like Beard's wedding and this and that. But you also have Jason, Jason, you also have Ted (laughs) in Kansas, happy to be with his son, maybe doesn't have the relationship that he had wanted to make work at the beginning of the series, but has as happy as can be managed type ending. And then finally, in the in the parallels, the, the, the last quote that I have here is the debate over the literature of the probable as opposed to the possible continues, but has fallen out in Austin's favor so far. So that quote, I was like, OK, so I think we see this with Ted Lasso as well. Like people wanted what was possible and were frustrated when they got what was probable instead. Right. We're used to TV that attempts to give us happy endings when they know that they're wrapping up the story. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I love Schitt's Creek. That's a great example of, like, tying everything up and giving everybody that happy ending, at least the main characters. But I think the probable is just as valid. And I personally find more enjoyment out of that. And I see that as a a parallel between Ted Lasso and Austin novels, Uh, particularly, again, going back to Marianne and the Willoughby thing, like, that that situation is like that wasn't going to happen was it possible sure it could have been but it wasn't probable and so it wasn't worth uh writing in i like what you said about the probable it also opens up the story more to like what can happen next like not you know like Shits creek great example of like we know their lives continued and things went on but like there is this kind of like nice bow on it of like and then you know everything worked out so you're you imagine kind of this like and then they made their money back and they were, you know, like all this goodness where the Ted Lasso ending, what I liked about that, the probable of it, right, is like, OK, so, so much can happen from here. Ted could come back. This could happen here. You know, like everyone can, everything could be whatever. And you in your head can imagine it. And I like stories that give me that, right? Like, I don't like, you know, I don't like stories sometimes that just finish everything at the end. Yeah, that everything is all tied up in a bow. Right. Um, I love the point that you made about the cottage industry around the two things. You know, that's the other thing is the cult-like fandom as well. I'm a Tenet and I'm a Janeite. And they're like, 
the Venn diagram of passion is very much there. All right. I do want to do two quick differences before I wrap up and then, then I'll be done. The first one is the centering of plot lines around assumptions. Right. And so this is specific to sense and sensibility. If we look at Eleanor, assuming that Marianne and Willoughby are engaged, assuming that Willoughby will call on them in London, assuming that Edward, like the lock of hair that he carries around is hers. Right. There's a lot of assumptions here. And with the exception of Nate, I don't think we see that as much. Right. Obviously, Nate makes a lot of assumptions about Ted, but this is a very specific conflict and not a series of minor conflicts that sort of escalates it's just like it's an explosion it's all building up inside nate but it's an explosion out into the world and it's largely contrasted with other characters who do manage to engage in communication with one another when things are uncertain so like largely i would argue that stakas centers the plot points around communication even when there are moments where communication is lacking it doesn't linger for the sake of the plot the lack of communication, again, as a supernatural person, it's like, oh, if we had only told each other this, it would be fine. Well, I'm a fan of the farce. The farce is my favorite kind of sitcom. And like you said, Ted Lasso really didn't rely too heavily on that trope. So I would fully agree. Yeah, absolutely. Keely, like, so Keely confronts Jack about how she, like, basically slut shames Keely uh, when the the nudes come out like she doesn't just let it build up she's like no we're gonna we're gonna fucking talk about this we're gonna deal with it head on Roy and Keeley have that fight in season two you're like oh no what's gonna happen what's gonna happen or even between season two and season three you realize they did actually talk about it they had a conversation about it to the point where they like bring Phoebe in and have a conversation with Phoebe in that season Rebecca is deceptive in season one but like at the end of every season, she has this moment where she comes and talks to Ted. Well, of the first two, obviously, the third one is a reverse. And then the other big difference I wanted to mention was a quote from the introduction of the complete novels that said, Austin is much more likely now than then to be criticized for the politics she left out. And so, like, this could include things like the American and French Revolution, uh, dependence on slave trade at that point in history. Like, none of that is in her novels. And I think this is really different from the way Sudeikis and the other writers approach Ted Lasso, where there's so much of these social issues put into the work. And, like, if a show gets called woke, then I find... That probably means it's a successful show. I'm probably going to like it is, yeah. is the key. Yeah. I mean, that being said, I'm all for Austin's approach to writing as well. I think it's beneficial to have both types, honestly. Like, we can't just have all of one kind. So those were two key differences in that the creative approaches. But um, yeah, that's where I wanted to leave off. It sounds a little bit like Jane Austen did it in her own way. If what you're saying from the book, the the sort of radical... We keep That's forgetting exactly. the title of the book you just showed <laughs> us, but you know, the secret radical. Yes, yeah, that sounds like she kind of tried to do that in her own way. So, right. the she does tangentially discuss war, it's it's a huge part of and the, the, the mostly the Napoleonic Wars, uh, because it's it's the it drives the plot and persuasion. And and the fact that there are Navy officers mentioned in Mansfield Park and Persuasion who are uh, characters that are essential to the 
plot lines for the main characters. Um, that sort of the looming specter of Napoleon escaping Alva is is what is a, like an underlying um, tension in persuasion. So for readers of Persuasion, they would have known that. So, yeah, but again, she can't be overt about it if she wants to have right. a romantic novel or, you know. Or even not... get her works published as a woman. Right. Like, so, period. <laughs> yeah, there's that, there's that. Let's take a break for some listener comments. Harhar76 on Twitter says... That Willoughby is like Jack Danvers, unconventional as exhibited by her defacing the Jane Austen original and influenced by wealth and status. Did you know we have an Instagram? Check us out at Beards Book Club. And now we're also on Blue Sky. And now back to the podcast. Bex, as always, thoroughly enjoyed that. And Andrea, you are next. Um, all right. So um, when it, we th- when this came up, I fully intended to read the book, but I had, um, if you remember from last time, I had just gotten this BritBox subscription and I looked and there were two BBC adaptions of Sense of Sensibility. Uh, and I decided to kind of focus on those. So I watched those and I, I kind of went through the book again, but I honestly more just kind of skimmed it because I kind of, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed both the adaptions and I kind of wanted to talk about them. Um, so I did prefer, so there were two, there was one that was done in 1981 and one that was done in 2008. And I actually, I preferred the older one, the 1981 one, because it felt truer to the style and the text. And I felt the 2008 one was trying to be a little too dramatic the, act, the acting was excellent of both. All the characters were great. It was just a couple things in the 2008 one. Like for, okay, so Mar- Margaret was a main character in two, the 2008 one, you know, where she was missing completely. She wasn't even mentioned in the 1981 one. Uh, the other strange inclusions in the 08 was um, it opened with this like montage scene of Willoughby pushing Eliza to have sex with him. And, it, you know, it was just kind of like, like showing her shoulder with his hand, you know, and like, it, it, I, I don't even think it was a whole minute, but it was just like, okay, well, like, what was that? It was never re-referenced again. It was like, again, it just felt like it was just trying to be like, ooh, look at this drama. And then it start, and then it also, st- then like the first scene then was the father dying and telling John, you know, you're, you have to take care of your, you know, your stepsisters, your, you know. And again, I just felt like that was, I don't know, it just felt overly dramatic. I don't know. And then, uh, so yeah, so that was them. The other thing, so going back to the question about who was my favorite, Margaret did have one great line that I really liked. And so just kind of to touch on some of the things that were mentioned before really quickly about what I was saying about how I've struggled with reading some of these older books because I felt like, you know, there's a lot of sexism and racism that comes up. And even the Agatha Christie I'm reading, it's just like, there's some moments I'm like, Agatha, like, what are you writing? Right. So I appreciate that perspective that like these were subversive in their time. Like that's actually really kind of good to hear because it's just like, and again, this is my problem. It's nothing about, I'm not complaining about the way anyone wrote any of these books. They wrote what they wrote and that's fine. It was just that, like, I struggle with engaging with some of these texts sometimes because it's just like cringy. Margaret, at one point, why I kind of, I kind of related to her. Well, I'm also the youngest child in my family, 
at one point, like, like everyone's talking about marriage and like marrying off the two sisters. Like every, every conversation is about finding husbands. And I think the mom was talking to Margaret and she was like, you know, what do you want? Like kind of, you know, just talking about what her, her later life is going to be like. And Margaret's just like, you know, she's like, I wish I was a man. Cause man can, men can do things like men can do whatever they want. And I was just kind of like, yeah, Margaret, like it just kind of felt like this, like, she's just like, fuck this shit. I don't, you know, like, I don't want to deal with this crap. I want to, I like, hope she's traveling the world somewhere. She's just, <laughs> just on her own right. ship or something. Yeah. Right. So specifically, I relate to the Margaret in the 2008 BBC adaption <laughs> of this book. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so one of my favorite points in the 1981 version is when Colonel Brandon is courting Marianne and she's kind of starting to soften to him. At one point he comes over to their house with this beautiful wooden box and he gives it to her and she opens it up and it's full of books. And she has this like, just this look of delight in her face. And I'm like, yeah, like there's no greater gift that can please a woman than a box of books. Like, (laughs) you know, at least these women. women after our heart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, that's all I like. That's all you need to ever buy me is a box of books. So, yeah. So when I first started uh, watching um, these series, I was focusing on where we saw the book, which again was Keely and Jack. And I know the comparisons of Rebecca and Keely as Eleanor and Marianne has been said. Um, and I did, I, I kind of, for a lot of the reasons that Bridget has already said, I didn't really agree with it. Um, I just like, it felt like a very surface comparison without really diving into it you know there were definitely certain things but it wasn't it wasn't something that i really strongly believed in there were too many holes in it for me considering jack though for a moment i mean there was definitely some willoughby in jack um you know and i kind of compared jack to giving keely the book to willoughby kind of giving marianne the horse uh right like it was kind of a similar just i don't know it's just like a gift that was very self-serving and very uh over the top over the top and like inconsiderate, right? Like writing in an original Jane Austen, <laughs> inconsiderate. <laughs> Massive right. main character syndrome. <laughs> yes. And it's impractical because it's one volume. Just like yes. the horse was like, how is she going to keep the horse? Exactly. How are you going to keep the horse? So it's just kind of like, yeah, like this kind of fake gift that was very self-serving. And so, yes, I, I didn't see Keely as Marianne. I really don't. It's just I, that comparison to me just doesn't really fly. But what I did start to think about, and uh, once I really started thinking about it, I kind of couldn't get out of my head was Eleanor as Ted. And I do believe this was from watching some of the way that it was acted and some of the portrayal in these adaptions. Um, as I was kind of like going through the book, I didn't read it, you know, completely. It wasn't quite as obvious in the book, but I mean, I, I do still think that it was some of it was there for sure. But yeah, so Ted is Eleanor and like, it was the way that Eleanor was hiding her feelings, the way that she felt she needed to be something for her sister, for her mom, um, especially in the 1981 adaption. She didn't show anything, uh, you know, she didn't really show any emotions until she did finally kind of break down when her sister got sick or, you know, when Edward, when it came up that Edward wasn't married, wasn't really married. And um, it was like Ted finally getting to the point, um, you know, that he started to have the panic attacks. You know, we saw inklings of them in episode one where he was kind of freaking out, you know, and, and then as things built up, like he kind of exploded. And I feel like Eleanor was showing a lot of the same 
a lot of the same tension early on that she then eventually exploded. And Eleanor would also kind of have these like these kind of nice little one-liners she would say, you know, that she would kind of spout at Marianne or other people that just felt overly positive. Um, And Marianne reacted in much the same way that the team was reacting to Ted in the beginning and to a lot of his Tedisms. And watching her, I had similar reaction that I had with Ted in the beginning. It all seemed so endearing and cute and we loved it. But really when you thought about it, Ted was hurting himself and everyone around him the whole time. His whole rom-com spiel about, you know, don't do anything and it'll all work out in the end is terrible advice. Like that's just terrible advice. Right. And I, and I feel like Ted was kind of, you know, a lot, I saw a lot of people like quoting a lot of the things Ted was saying or Ted was doing is like, these were great. And like, there was a good point of them, but like, maybe he wasn't really truly living them. Some of the things he wasn't truly living and some of them were these kinds of things that are a little bit more just like, you know, hey, just, you know, keep your head down and keep going and it'll all work out. Like just isn't real advice for life. You know, it's kind of like when Rebecca made that comment about, I, I always harp on this. I'm sorry. She made that comment about about hiring your friend. That's terrible advice. It's terrible advice. And they kind of sorted it in season three when or when um, Shandy was just yeah. nothing but a pain in the arse. So, yeah. I've had to hi- I've had to fire friends of mine. I know what that's like, and that sucks. And not that you should never should never could hire your friend, but just you need to be you need to be aware of what you're doing. So Ted realizes season three that he needed to be accountable, just as Jamie needed to. You know, Eleanor was too worried about everybody else, what everyone else was thinking, to the loss of her relationships and herself. Um, I feel like Marianne, you know, uh, distanced herself from Eleanor a lot because Eleanor just kind of kept this very stoic, very, you know, kind of saying the same things over and over. And so she kind of was just like, you know, questioning her about it. Like, don't you ever think of anything else? Don't you ever have a feeling? Not that Marianne had it all figured out. Believe me, I'm not saying like she was. (laughs) She was 17. (laughs) Yeah. But really, I think we all realize that you need a bit of both. You need the sense and the sensibility. And Ted struggled with the relationships in his life because he never shows his sensibility. But then once he starts to in season three, his relationships in his life change. I think even um, Michelle, I think even she kind of realizes when she has her relationship with the doctor, the, you know, the ex-psychiatrist, I think that I think the psychiatrist in a way was that opposite of Ted was kind of, you know, the Marianne, if you will, in a way. Right. And, and, and she kind of, her kind of realizing like, okay, they're, you know, that isn't all great. Right. And then Ted started to show some vulnerability. He actually started to admit some of his feelings and some of the thoughts he was actually having, you know, once he even makes that revelation to his mom about like, what's why he's almost running away from Henry right? It's like this thing comes out of him and he's able to like move on and like show this vulnerability. And like all along, that's what he's had to do. Not, you know, keep your head down and, you know, just keep like, you know, kind of the stuff he was spouting in the beginning, you know? Yeah. Like again, about just kind of ignoring things and things will work out. So yeah. So I just feel like Ted and Eleanor were on that same journey together where they were like, I have to do these things because these are the right things and I have to keep everyone around me happy, but really you're keeping nobody happy, not even yourself. And I feel like both Eleanor and Ted went through that same journey. Yeah. Ted just did it with more puns. Ted did it with a lot more puns. Yes. Eleanor was not punning, but she was, yeah. 
And I'm going to read that um, Jane Austen, The Secret Radical. I put it in my Goodreads already. So thank you. It for that. sounds right up your street, to be yeah. honest. So yeah. yeah. Time for more listener comments. And lastly, Harhar76 says that Edward is like Ted. As she says, it'll be interesting to see if the two plots continue to parallel each other. And if you want to submit a comment in future, message us at beardsbookclub at gmail.com. And remember, there are no wrong answers. This is literary analysis, and it's fun. And now, back to the podcast. Excellent. A book recommendation and an excellent piece. Marita, you're going to take us forward. Yeah, so um, as we talked about briefly, you know, the there is just mountains of Austin literature and it's all over the place. So finding one thing to focus on was a little bit tough, but I found this paper from 2000 called the sense and sensibility of betrayal, discovering the meaning of treachery through Jane Austen. Uh, And it's by Roger L. Jackson, who's a professor at Stockton university in New Jersey in the journal Humanitas. And so this paper essentially sets out to discuss betrayal and it does that drawing examples from sense and sensibility. And so the author leads And because uh, his name is Jackson, and I'm going to talk about Jack a little bit, I'm going to keep referring to him as the author to keep it from being too confusing, I hope. Thank you. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, so the author first talks a little bit about betrayal. And so quoting, for the purposes of a moral assessment, it surely matters a great deal whether an actual betrayal occurred. Further, because even a merely perceived betrayal ruptures trust and contaminates relationships for both parties, negative consequences may be mitigated if a legitimate interpretation of the incident can be offered. Refining and clarifying exactly what betrayal is, the context within which it occurs, how it differs from other trust violations may allow a more reasonable assessment of betrayal. It then brings up other papers on betrayal that have used literature as a means of understanding the topic uh, instead of using philosophy itself. Uh, There's a few reasons why that's handy to do. Um, One of them is in literature, we usually get a really good view of what's happening in terms of what the betrayal is, as well as contextual information and details about the characters involved that might not work so well in either an abstract sense or in a real life example that may or may not be betrayal because we don't really know the whole story. And betrayal is a pretty common theme in literature, right? So there's a lot to look to there. On a practical level, the author is then looking for a way to differentiate between genuine and merely perceived betrayal and also, quote, provides systematic guidance for the assessment of alleged betrayal in real life. So really what he's doing is formalizing how we consider when trust has been violated and how to consider how severe the violation is. So with that, he goes into sense and sensibility. I like this paper because it gives us the chance to consider the many betrayals and violations of trust that take place in both sense and sensibility, but also in Ted Lasso using kind of the same framework that he's uh, provided. So if we're going to have a trust violation, and this is a philosophy paper where we have to sort of rigorously define everything, he starts by defining trust. And so this is a quote, and it's a formal definition. So trust is a disposition on the part of one person, the trusting party, to extend to another, the trusted party, discretionary power over something the truster values, which is the object of trust, with the confident expectation that the trusted party will have the goodwill and competence to successfully care for it. And then he lays out again with a lot of formal definitions, conditions that have to be met for something to constitute a betrayal, as opposed to just a disappointment of trust. 
So I'm going to shorthand a lot of those, but there's really three big things that have to happen. And the first is that the trust has to be justified. And to claim the trust is justified, this is a quote, means there are plausible grounds for believing that in this per particular circumstance, trusting will be successful. You know, you might make the claim that trust was only justified if like the trust was actually successful, right? This is a little more generous than that. And it uses the example from Sense and Sensibility, uh, the trust that Mrs. Dashwood, the mother of the girls, put in her husband to adequately take care of her and her daughters, right? He'd always made good financial decisions. He clearly cared about his wife and daughters. And when he knew he was restricted by the way that the property was passed on to him, he implored his son to make sure that they were taken care of, right? He could not have predicted how easily his son would have caved to his selfish wife, Fanny, great name. Um, so in this case, right, Saying Mrs. Dashwood's trust in Mr. Dashwood was unjustified would be kind of harsh, even though that trust wasn't ultimately upheld, right? The trust was disappointed because nobody is omniscient. Nobody has control over the circumstances of the world. So the first thing is the trust has to be justified with a reasonable justification. The next thing that has to happen is the trust has to be acknowledged. And so quoting again, the fact that some object of trust is valued by us does not mean that another must accept discretionary responsibility for it. This is a great life lesson in general, <laughs> right? There must be an acknowledgement or acceptance of trust. And that acknowledgement can be explicit like a promise or it can be implicit. So that's the second is that we need this acknowledgement of trust. And finally, for there to be a violation of trust, quote, the cause must be linked to some neglect or indifference or to an intentional decision on the part of the trusted party to disappoint the trusting party. So it has to be some sort of action on the, on the part of the person who has been trusted um, that makes the trust not be successful. So there's a lot of discussion in this paper, as there should be, of the major plot point of Willoughby's treatment of Marianne. And what he's done is certainly a trust violation, right? The trust put in him to make her happy was justified as they all had reason to believe he had the necessary traits to make her happy, right? So that trust was justified. The trust was acknowledged and even encouraged by Willoughby's behavior, right? A quote from the book, nothing could be more expressive of attachment to them all than Willoughby's behavior. To Marianne, it had all the distinguishing tenderness which a lover's heart could give. And to the rest of the family, it was the affectionate attention of a son and brother. The cottage seemed to be considered and loved by him as his home. Many more of his hours were spent there than in Alanim. He's definitely acknowledged this trust in his behavior towards Marianne. And so finally, the cause of the disappointment of trust was certainly linked to, and it's arguable where this is, the neglect, the indifference, or an intentional decision on Willoughby's part. Right. So there is a trust violation that Willoughby has committed. Instead of just thinking about trust violations and considering them all betrayals, uh, again, this is a philosophy paper and we have to sort of pick things apart as much as we can. The author goes on to differentiate between two different types of trust violation. So he has abandonment and betrayal. And before we go into that, I think it's worth kind of considering some of the disappointments of trust, as the turn of phrase the author would use, uh, and frame them in Ted Lasso and thinking about whether they meet these requirements. So because of the context where this book is in the show and the parallels with Marianne and Willoughby, it's definitely worth looking at Jack's treatment of Keeley in this context. Um, but first, as a violation of trust, we're considering what it was. I think it's worth looking at what precipitated the crisis with Jack, which is the hack of Jamie's phone, right? So within the context of the paper, we can't consider that there was a trust violation based on that first criteria, right? She trusted Jamie 
enough to send him some sort of naughty video, right? But for there to be a trust violation, she had to be justified in thinking that Jamie could keep that safe. And did Jamie really have the competence to keep that trust, right? Mm. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think you could argue one way or another. I mean, getting your phone hacked is pretty horrible, but the trust wasn't really justified in the first place because that wasn't really a, a, a safe thing to do, right? And if the trust wasn't justified, it's not a trust violation. I do love that the show pushed the situation further and made sure that Jamie sort of did this atonement by making sure that the trust other people had placed in his teammates could not be disappointed, right? Because he made everyone go through and get rid of all their pictures. I I love that follow-up and that accountability there. I do think this has an effect on how people judge Jamie in that situation because largely in the fandom, they didn't, right? It wasn't a trust violation because (laughs) he just couldn't really protect that information in the first place. So we'll consider what happened between Keely and Jack. And I absolutely love Bridget's parallels. I do think that Jack is very Willoughby coded. Um, one thing I would point out is that Willoughby's first name in the book is John and Jack is a nickname for John. I think there's that coding there. I, I also think we have the circumstance, you know, Willoughby sent this really horrible letter to Marianne in the same way that Keeley got that awful letter she was expected to sign off on. And when confronted with it, Jack was like, well, yeah, this is somebody wrote that just, you know, no big deal. And when Willoughby is, is talking to Eleanor to sort of tell, you know, his mea culpa, this is the horrible thing I did. He's like, oh yeah, my wife dictated that, right? I didn't write that. I just wrote her words. I feel so bad about it. But what else could I do? Right? So there's that comparison there too, where I, I think we get some, some Willoughby coding in Jack. My eyes are rolling out of my head at that line. Like my, my my wife dictated it to me. Like, dude, no. <laughs> Men have got all the power until it doesn't suit them. Then it's a woman's fault. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> like like Lizzo says, why am wait what what is her line? Oh my god. Why are men great till they gotta be great? Gotta be great. Like, <laughs> yes. Yes. Why are men great till they gotta be great? That's it. Yeah. I saw someone else talking about something, and it just applied to Willoughby, and and it. It, what did they say? This man has one thing, and it's the audacity. And I'm like, yeah, that's, <laughs> I love it. that's exactly right. But getting into Willoughby, the author starts talking about differentiating different t- types of trust violations, right? The betrayal versus the abandonment. And so he sets really specific conditions for something to be a betrayal. And he sets three of them. The first is that it is an intelligible, purposive event. That's very philosophy speak. Uh, The second is that it is a specific kind of manipulation of the relationship of trust. And the third is that genuine betrayal, and this is where he contextualizes it with Willoughby, requires a more deliberate character and more cultivated understanding than Willoughby possesses, right? So his argument then is that Willoughby has done an abandonment of the trust relationship, but not a betrayal. And partially because he just sort of sucks and isn't sophisticated enough to sort of manipulate people in in that way. And so when talking about betrayal, the author of this paper says, quote, the betrayer sees the relationship of trust in fundamentally instrumental terms. The relationship is the medium through which a betrayer creates an effect or obtains a prize. In order to achieve the goal, betrayers must lie or mislead the truster about their intentions at critical moments in the relationship. This is so because their objective is not to care for the object of trust, whatever it is, but to use the relationship to achieve a goal extrinsic to it. So again, this is discussed in the paper in discussion of Willoughby, because whatever his initial designs on Marianne were, when he does fall for her, right, when his situation becomes untenable, He doesn't continue manipulating her. It's not this purposeful event. He just fucking runs away, right? Disengages completely. (laughs) That brings the author to the other kind of trust violation, which is abandonment, right? 
Willoughby has abandoned his care of the relationship of trust. And so this is interesting because the paper then goes on to talk about the more moral dimensions of betrayal versus abandonment. And if we look at Sense and Sensibility, Austin really came down pretty hard on the side of betrayal being worse. Uh, and we can see that in Marianne's response to Willoughby when he comes and explains what happened because, or when he comes to explain to Eleanor what happened, right? Because when Eleanor explains it to Marianne, she's, she and Eleanor both are relieved to find out that Willoughby genuinely did love her, even though the net result didn't change anything overall, right? In their eyes, that abandonment is not as bad as a betrayal would have been if he were just calculated and, and manipulating her all along. And so Austin, at least in this case, and Bridget, maybe you can think of examples in other books that contradict that, Austin treats betrayal as a lot worse than abandonment. But it's interesting because the author of this paper isn't so sure he feels the same way. Uh, he makes the very valid argument that now gets boiled down to impact mattering more than intent, that in many cases the consequences of, of a violation of trust are the same regardless of what kind it is. Uh, and he also points out that there are cases when manipulative betrayal is actually morally right and correct, right? There are times when that sort of betrayal is actually the moral good, as an example, spies who deliberately cultivated the trust of, of and then betrayed Nazis, right? There are times when a betrayal is the right thing to do. But to quote the author, indeed, it is hard to envision a situation in which someone who abandons a relationship of trust through laziness, cowardice, or indifferent would ever merit our approval, right? So betrayal can be very good, very bad, but abandonment is always kind of shitty, right? <laughs> kind of no way around that. In any case, there's some examples of each of these from the show that I think a lot of fans can agree on. The most obvious one of betrayal is Rebecca's season one arc, right? That is very clearly a betrayal by the standards set out in this paper. We can establish there was a justification of trust because why would she hire someone and not want them to do a job well? I think Ted had a reasonable expectation that he should be able to trust her. There's an acknowledgement of that trust because she openly acts like she wants him to do well and like she's a supporting him. And her entire approach to the relationship from the start is one of manipulation of trust to ex achieve her extrinsic goal of making Rupert's life a living hell. I don't think the season one redemption arc works nearly as well if the trust violation wasn't as severe as it was, right? We can all see this as a betrayal. So in order for her to redeem herself from that, it's not really a redemption arc if you weren't fucking horrible at some point, right? So, and additionally with betrayal, um, basically everything Rupert does is betrayal and it's portrayed as such even when we can't really see what his extrinsic motivation is and manipulating every single relationship right everything Rupert does is calculated everything he does is sort of a machination that's done for a reason and it's not ever done to care for the relationship that he's engaging in Rupert's a bad dude <laughs> Rupert is as you know they make him literally Darth Vader <laughs> <laughs> right well exactly right. so yeah um your abandonment question that is the um that is the 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 plot line basically of persuasion okay and elliot is engaged to captain wentworth and abandons him she's persuaded to abandon him and oh. then they are reunited like spoiler alert sorry <laughs> they come into each other's social circle again like 10 years later and then what pers what ensues from that is what the the plot of the story is interesting and it's never really i mean it's argued throughout was she right to be persuaded into abandoning him 
or was she wrong to have been persuaded to abandon him? And, you know, that's left a little ambiguous because it's her heart that wants it, but it's her duty that says she should leave him. And if she had stayed with him, the course of his life wouldn't have come out the way it was when they ran into each other again, which made circumstances and their subsequent relationship that much stronger. So, All right. So moving from betrayal into abandonment, since we're talking about that now, what Jack does to Keely is very much abandonment, right? She wasn't with Keely as some calculated thing to, I don't know, fuck up her own investment. <laughs> I mean, that, that doesn't make any sense contextually in the story. Um, but she does abandon Keely, and she does it in a very Willoughby-esque fashion. She just completely disengages and withdraws from the relationship for her own self-interest, right? She fucks off out of the country. We have that parallel of the shitty letter being involved, um, that they claim was dictated by someone else, that, oh, I'm helpless in this situation, what can I do? So I think that's a very clear cut of case of abandonment, and I think the show sets it up very well, so everyone just hates Jack at the end of it. There's not a lot of controversy controversy that I've seen among the fans about whether or not Jack was justified in what she did. But I think why this framework is so interesting to me is that people do both evaluate and weight these different types of violations differently. And it's probably informed a lot by their own experiences. But I also think that has an impact on how people as fans react to different events in the show, right? Things that are more morally ambiguous in terms of uh, violations of trust. And examples of this, like Nate explicitly calls Ted out for abandoning him at the end of season two. Right. He, he says that very clearly. And I think a lot of because there was a, you know, no one was thrilled with what Nate did, but people had different degrees of how angry they were with Nate. Right. And I think to some extent, how much they hated Nate for what he did had a lot to do with how much they felt Ted had indeed abandoned Nate. And so whether or not people felt that there was like a justified trust established that Ted had acknowledged, and if Ted actually abandoned that, I think where people fall along the lines of considering that has a lot to do with what they thought about Nate's actions at the end of season two. That makes sense. No, that absolutely makes sense. Um, because I feel like the the sympathy or empathy for the quote unquote abandoner is what shifts your perspective on the reaction of that, that person who's reacting to it in the situation. Right, because you could certainly, with this framework, consider what Nate did to be a betrayal, because initially his relationship with Ted wasn't calculated, but it turned into one where he was calculated and doing things specifically with, with Ted. I, he's a little too emotional, I think, to be completely treating the relationship as an instrument, but he did start deliberately doing things to sabotage Ted. I also think, and this is one that's going to pick a fight with Bexalou, <laughs> um, I think it colored how people viewed rela Rebecca's relationship with Sam. So I've seen it argued that there's a power differential there, right? But I also think whether or not people thought there was sort of a justified trust established with the position of Rebecca relative to Sam, whether or not they think that was there, I think how people feel about that sort of colors whether they think her relationship with him turning sexual was a violation of trust or not. I mean, it makes sense. I don't... Like, it wasn't for me because I didn't see any sort of trust that was violated because of the way in which they came together, right? But again, because of that position of power, I can see why people would say, like, that in and of itself was that breaking of the trust. 
that implicit trust. Yeah, no. So, I, and I don't think there's a right answer to that one, but I, I think the way people approach what her responsibilities to Sam were in terms of a trust relationship probably has a big impact on how they felt about that relationship, I guess would be my argument. So if anyone else has any examples, I'd love to hear them. I just had a couple other observations I was going to throw in. One of them was, is, you know, with books, it takes a while for them to catch for me. So I'll read a little bit at a time and then I'll get to a point where I just have to keep reading. I think that's true for a lot of people. And there was a line right near the end of Sense and Sensibility that I barely could finish the book when I got to it. <laughs> um, and it's very specific to me. I do a lot of uh, fiber arts and I do a lot of embroidery and sharp scissors are super important. And anyone who either sews or had a mother who sews knows what happens when you use their fucking fabric scissors for something like paper. If you want to live, you do not. <laughs> So when Edward shows up to tell Eleanor that he's not actually married and to ask her hand, right? There's this quote and it says, he rose from his seat and walked to the window, apparently from not knowing what to do. He took up a pair of scissors that lay there and while spoiling both them and their sheath by cutting the ladder to pieces as he spoke, said in a hurried voice. And I was like, I was with you, Edward, until right then. But, you know, sharp scissors are a premium now. I cannot imagine what a luxury they were at the time this book was written. <laughs> just, I would have been like, this is so specific. You know I adore it. I know. I love it. That is the most Marita like response ever. And I love it. Anyone who values sharp scissors for their craft, like, and if they're on a table in the sitting room, they're for embroidery. They're for some sort of fiber art. They need to be sharp. What the fuck? <laughs> embroidery was the pastime of gentlewomen at right. the time. So right. your reaction, I think, is probably the same reaction. And it's illustrative, I think, a little bit of Edward's character as well. Because we get so little insight into his character, really. throughout. The but that he would just... Ha un unwittingly bumble his way into ruining something just like he kind of unwittingly ruined his life by at a young age agreeing to be right. engaged to yes <laughs> i will exactly. say though it was probably more common to like go and get your scissors sharpened then mm. than it is now where people are like i'm just buying a new pair or something like you probably have someone who like in your neighborhood who's like that does that as a job and i say that as someone who lives in a neighborhood where we have a knife truck that comes around, he drives around and sharpens love knives. That. So. <laughs> what? Where the hell do you live? Brooklyn, baby. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. So the another thing that I noticed that is a fun little parallel with Ted Lasso, um, and it's in the language that was chosen. And so it's when Willoughby has come to explain to Eleanor what's happened. And we're in the part where he talks about how he found out that they had come to London and his reaction when he first sees the letter from Marianne, right? And part of this quote is, to know that Marianne was in town was, in the same language, a thunderbolt, thunderbolts and daggers. What a reproof would she have given me? And I thought that was perfect because Willoughby, in this case, deserves someone who makes him feel like he's been struck by lightning, but in a bad way. Wow. He deserved yeah. that horrible fucking feeling and he got it from that. And I just love that the language is the same. I just want Roy delivering that line to Willoughby though. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Fantastic, Marita. Really loved that. And oh, it's, there's only me left. Yeah, your turn. <laughs> Sense and sensibility reminded me very much of the lion panda debate. 
And the um, the Lion Panda debate being the debate that sees Kelly ask both Ted and Rebecca which they would rather be. Ted chooses Panda, which Rebecca reacts to with shock choosing the lion because what do you call something that's black and white and red all over? A panda that gets anywhere near a fucking lion. <laughs> which makes sense because as far as I can tell from a lot of breeding programs, there's no such thing as a fucking panda. <laughs> Quality joke. Excellent Thank work, you. my friend. I really enjoyed <laughs> writing that one. It was going in there, whether it fitted or made sense or not, it was going in. <laughs> but yeah, the Eleanor and, and Marianne began the story in opposing outlooks on life. Eleanor is reserved in her emotions, and we've talked about this before, so I'll not spend too much time on this, but she prefers to let things happen to her, while Marianne is outgoing with her emotions and goes for what she wants and doesn't see why she should let anything get in her way. However, by the end of the story, Eleanor embraces her repressed emotions and Marianne makes a decision not only with her heart, but also with her head. So they kind of balanced out. I do believe there's benefits to both sense and sensibility or being a panda and being a lion. But for me, it is about balance. It's about having a, a equality between the two. But I've chosen to look at the pairs of characters whose sense or sensibility was out of sync and therefore hindering them. And then I want to relook at them at the end of the story to see what's changed. So with Ted, he's a panda, right? I mean, he chooses panda himself, but he's a panda. He travels across the world to coach a sport he doesn't know anything about, just to avoid dealing with his emotions. He wants to play Roy when he is nearing the end of his career and could possibly hinder the team. And that's just to avoid hurting Roy's feelings. And that's just two examples that I can think of. And who I've chosen to pair with Ted is Beard. And I know it, it might be hard to think of Beard as, as a lion. And this is actually a good point for all these characters. It's the perspective that makes them a lion or a panda, not the whole character. It's the perspective I'm choosing to look at it from. And Beard, reading books about football on the plane, preparing himself for the upcoming challenge. He's the one to call Ted out for playing Roy when it isn't the right move for the team. And he feels such a responsibility to Ted, he follows, follows him anywhere, which is, I mean, for me, that's he's a lion in his loyalty. We get to the end of these stories, though. Ted leaves Richmond. He's in touch with his feelings and how to convey them in a healthy way. He is able to tell Michelle that our actions with... It's Dr. J, right? His name was J. Jake. Jake, that's right. Yeah, I just referred to him as Arsehole, so I forgot his name. But yeah, Dr. Arsehole, I mean, Jake upset him, and he isn't afraid to be with his son anymore. He isn't afraid that, you know, he's going to get his heart broken from his son. And that, so that, to me, feels like a panda to, to sort of lie and move. And Beard, he comes clean to Nate about why he's given him a second chance, that being the fact that he, he feels like he owes everything to Ted, as Ted gave him multiple chances, he feels finally released from his self-imposed tie to Ted, and he's there to live his own life now. And that, again, to me, is more sort of panda-like in the sense that the loyalty that he felt fiercely lying in is tamed. And I don't know how you all feel about that. I completely agree with what you said. I think you're right. Like, there is definitely a panda quality to Ted, but then his, it, you know, it, it, it's again, ha- you have to have both. That's how everything, everything survives, right? Like a, a panda has to sometimes be like a lion in order to survive, right? Yeah. It got got really confusing because I was like, well, yeah. you know, if you think about Ted as 
um, his veracity to make sure everybody in the room is happy, you could refer to him as a lion. You know, right. and I started to second guess myself in that respect. But overall, I would say that it's more in the panda. Right. I mean, so, even absolutely even to your point about your point about Beard, like being more of like a panda by coming true to his emotions at the end. Like that was such a a vulnerable position to put himself in. Like, could that be also seen as a lion? Right. Like that's the, the, the confidence, the confidence to go and admit to, to you know, to Nate what, what had happened to him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And and to me, the reason I thought of it as more going from sort of lion to panda is the softening. Yeah, oh, totally. right, it's yeah. like a softening for Beard who barely expressed any sort of um, feeling about himself. Plenty about others, plenty rants about guitarists and, you know, stuff like that, but nothing about himself. And then to have an absolute, like, hairy fit on a plane so he could get off and, and get back to being with his family is, is was really more a softening to me but I did really start to second guess myself so I, I, I am looking for complete input on it because no I think I think you're absolutely right I mean honestly I think that the what happens with the second guessing is just like with sense and sensibility where the true answer is that both have both to varying degrees the same is true here and and perspective can play a role into it but it's also about the journey and yeah you know marianne and eleanor go on a journey not necessarily intentionally so but just by virtue of growing up they mm. they go on a journey and that's the same thing that can be said for for beard and ted so it's more about the contrast of what they started with to where they ended up how they had to embody the other animal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And their appearances are actually like heads always in those soft sweaters, like a paint like soft panda. And then Beard's yeah. facial hair is literally like a, a lion's like scruffy mane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. I like that. That that's really cool. I actually wonder if this one would be more interesting because the one that really stumped me was Roy, because as much as Roy is a lion on the field, he's a panda in his life, right? In every other respect. Would you agree with that? I, I think Roy is a, a panda who wants to pretend to be a lion. And I think in that case, he kind of has a lot in common with Nate, who is terrified that he's a panda and wants to be be a lion, which is a little bit different than what, you know, Roy is, what he is, and then projecting something else, whereas Nate is more worried that he might be too soft, too not enough, too yeah. panda. He wanted to be a tiger and rip anyone apart who, who exactly them, right? So, yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. I paired Roy up with someone interesting. I don't even know if you'll guess this. I paired him up with Trent. And the reason being is what happened in season three um, when, when Roy let Trent know how much that article he wrote about him as a, a debut player hurt his feelings and, and how it affected him. Because we had Trent starting his story off as this no shit, take no prisoners, sports journal who was going to make a fool out of Ted Lasso and just, get you know, doesn't matter who was in his way, he would just be telling what he perceived to be the truth. But then he was sort of like swayed by Ted's ways when he actually took a closer look at him and decided to change the whole course of his life, get out of the cold, hard journalism, write a book about the ways it could be different, and in the end apologising to Roy 
for, you know, just trying to be Charlie Big Balls, as we would say here, and, you know, not caring what. <laughs> that's not a saying anywhere over there, then, I take it. No, it really is not. Nope. That's <laughs> it is one now. For me. But it should be. Yeah. <laughs> I like to drop one pair of episodes. <laughs> One wait, did you say one per you episode one pair. or one pair? No, I like to drop one pair episode. <laughs> pair. <PR. laughs> the thing that was funny for me about Trent Prim in the Strings That Bind Us episode was um how the writer at the end is called the door, exposes the like thesis basically of the show, and then Ted says, you know, uh Roy calls him their dork, uh, such a dork. And then yeah. Ted says, he's our dork. He's ours. And this is the writer in it. So that's the writer's room kind of pumping themselves up in a little yeah. bit. But I love that. At the same time, pumping up Jane Austen, who's also a writer of the story. Yeah. Right? yeah. Mm, love it. Well, the, the thing is, I mean, this, we could literally go on for all eternity with the characters. I'd be interested to see on Twitter. And yes, I'm still calling it Twitter. Um, if you could chime in and let me know your sort of take on the lion and panda and which pair that you would would, would put that on. Um, that would be really interesting to me. Or you could message us on Blue Sky too. Of Indeed. course. We're I, now I on forgot. Blue Sky. <laughs> it's interesting to look at all of those characters. And again, just like with, with Marianne and Eleanor and considering what they start with, what they end up with going through the Ted Lasso characters that like, if we rename the show instead of Ted Lasso, we call it, you know, Panda and Lion. And then it's just a matter of like identifying which characters contain how much of each of those animals that that could be fun. Yeah. And that, well, that goes with Ted, with uh, Jane Austen as well, since a lot, since her big, two of her biggest novels have the and in the middle of it, right? Mm-hmm. Panda and well, lion, sense of sensibility, pride and prejudice. Yeah. <laughs> and a lion and, and a pride. Mm-hmm. And I, just, <laughs> I totally am still thinking, Bex, of how you really brought it home that, like, you can sit here and analyze both Ted Lasso and Jane Austen to no end. It goes on and on and on because of the rich writing, I think, from both. Yeah. Totally agree. That's yeah. what it comes yeah. down to. So thanks, writers team. Yeah. <laughs> Bridget, I want to say a big thank you for joining us um, for this episode. I don't think we could have done it without you. Can you let our audience know where they can find you? Yes. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Oh, my gosh. To be a nerd about books with a bunch of other book nerds who also love Ted Lasso. It's like a dream come true. Come on now. I love it. My biggest, uh, like where I do too much Ted Lassoing and Tori Amosing and Jane Austening is, is not the, my main uh, handle. So my main handle is at notebook, Witch or at the notebook, Witch on all social media reddit blue sky whatever go to it you'll probably find notebook witch or the notebook witch and art's notebook is where i do my fandom for ted dane and tori um and if if only instead of a cranberry song it was a tori amos song that opened up that episode would have been i would have been i would have been dead i would have gone you wouldn't have been here you would have been in heaven already (laughs) 
And um, I also run a, a Jane Austen book club called the Boston Austen Book Club. That's the even though awesome I'm in name. Rhode Island. <laughs> yeah, I thought it up when I lived in Boston. Um, I started it when I moved to Rhode Island. We used to go pre-pandemic. We used to go to the best pizza place in Boston, the Pleasant Cafe in Roslyn. Don't start the great pizza debate <laughs> in New York. You'll never, you'll, you'll well, never get to do it. For, like, You've got a Chicago person and a Brooklyn person here, and a pineapple <laughs> on pizza person. Not the best pizza. The best pizza in Boston. Okay. And so, okay. all right, all right, we'll give you that. Sorry to the East Boston Centarpio people, but the Pleasant has won NBC, the local NBC affiliates, Best Pizza, many times. And I, I have to give a shout out to them anyway, because they used to host us. But now we've moved to Zoom. So anyone's welcome to join. Everyone is welcome <laughs> to come to the Boston Austin Book Club whenever you want. But actually, the next Boston Austin Book Club is going to be uh, November 19th, which is the bye week for the Patriots. Um, <laughs> at 3.30 on Sunday. And we are actually just going to talk about Ted and Jane. We were going to do it last night, but I had to do a cancellation, last minute cancellation, because someone couldn't make it who really wanted to come. So we're moving it. And then everyone, I'll be promoting this episode, this podcast episode for everyone to listen to. So we can talk about what we all talked about in this episode. So if you want to come and join us, you're welcome to. And you can just search Facebook for Boston Austin Book Club or you can go to notebookwitch.com and click on the Boston Austin Book Club part of the blog and see the details for that. That is fantastic. We love a crossover. Thank you, Bridget. Yeah, I love it. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Follow us on Twitter at Beards Book Club or send us an email at coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family and leave a five-star review.